This is Top Floor, episode 113. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 113. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Philip Welker had every intention of becoming an investment banker, but circumstances conspired to make him a hotel developer instead. First, he built out a loft in a semi-abandoned part of historic downtown Knoxville. And then he interned with a real estate development company. After graduation, Philip got into residential real estate investing, but it wasn't until his time at NYU pursuing a master's in real estate that he met his future business partner and started down the path to what would become Oliver Hotels. Today, we are going to talk about historic tax credits and boutique hotels with a past. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and random strangers off the street who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Christy, who asks... As the owner of multiple properties, how do you plan how much time to spend on each? So I think this is a time management question probably more than anything else. But Philip, what do you think? Do you have an hour per day for each of your properties? Or do you just take it as it comes? Or how do you handle that? Uh, No, I do. I actually I try to slate uh, one day per week per property or per project. Um, and so, you know, obviously different properties have different stages have different challenges. Some are e- easier than others um, uh, from time to time. But but yeah, generally, I, I try to dedicate and make all meetings about one specific property on one day. That way, uh, you can reduce the amount of like hat changing and multitasking. That makes a lot of sense, sort of keeping that context all the same for one day. I need to look at your calendar and maybe set myself up that way as well. You started rehabbing residential real estate in college and then got into larger multi-family deals after graduation. What did you learn from that? Well, you know, I think like in hospitality, a lot of people have stories of like starting out, you know, as a host or front desk agent. And mine was, I learned physical construction and hands-on property management. I mean, I bought vacant historic properties and rehabbed them. I did the demolition work on the sheetrock, painted, hired labor, and then I transitioned. I had to lease the units. I managed them. I did a lot of the maintenance, collected rents, paid mortgages, oversaw tax returns. And so, you know, while I had an undergraduate degree in finance and I could do my own underwriting and arrange loans and banks and do the accounting and everything, uh, it was it was really my kind of doing the actual physical construction work that, you know, helped kind of prep me for doing larger deals later on. I knew I wanted more than to build just a handful of individual properties, which was a lot like creating myself a job. So <laughs> I started working on larger and larger multifamily properties that could themselves support a whole staff. And, you know, the best piece of advice I got early on in my career during my internship was 
the developer told me, he says, there's really no difference between a small deal and a large deal, except the number of zeros. And so I kind of took that, you know, forward and used my, you know, business and finance education to be, and, and what I knew about construction and property management and just apply it on a larger scale. I'm so interested in the construction part of that for of your answer because my husband is somebody who just like sort of has a natural t- talent for he can look at something and figure out how to fix it or how it works or whatever. Are you that kind of person or did you have to I don't know watch a bunch of YouTube videos or something? No, I yeah, no I am. I'm very um intuitive and hands-on like that. Maybe not as good as your husband, but you know, I took building trades classes in high school and it worked on farms and stuff. And so, um, you know, I actually entered UT as a civil engineer. I was at a, a holiday party with my, my, my dad, who was a, an attorney and, um, we're at this thing and a guy walked up to me and he said, uh, he said, Oh, so Philip, you're freshman college, you know, now what are you, what are you majoring in? And I said, well, I'm in civil engineering, but I don't like it. And my dad was saying, yeah, I'm telling him to get a general business degree. And the gentleman said, he says, well, every time I go to a major city, the largest building is a, is a bank. So they got to be doing something right over there in finance. <laughs> so I did, I, I went to the, I, after, right after that semester, I, I subscribed to the universe, uh, the college of business and got a finance degree. And, and, um, that was that. You met your business partner, Ethan Orley in grad school at NYU. How did your partnership come about? Well, he and I took the same classes and we ran in the same circles. Um, I think he was actually a semester behind me. And then in 2008, uh, when the Great Recession took hold, um, I happened to move neighborhoods in Manhattan. I moved up to the West Village and I was actually just a couple blocks from him. And he had a great outdoor area uh, with like a grill and we hosted a lot of friends and, and we both lived along the West Side, close to the Hudson River. And there were some tennis courts over there. So a lot of times we just get together very impromptu. And we both found ourselves without jobs and we were both looking to put together our own deals and we were trading advice um, because I had a lot of physical construction and property management stuff. He would bring those kind of things to me. And then I would ask him because he was in the capital market side more about like, hey, where's good places to raise equity and, and that type of thing. And um, he was just looking around the New York City area, as I recall. And I was really looking all over the country for just large multifamily properties. And I had a bias actually to move out to the West Coast. And, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. And during that time, I got kind of a fortuitous call from uh, from an old college buddy who I'd kind of kept in touch with, who became a very successful multifamily broker. He started his career in Atlanta, but then he he landed in Nashville. And he called me just to you know talk about what was happening in New York and the markets. And and I told him I was looking for big multifamily properties. And he says, well, this, this, this guy out of New York just lost 5,000 units around the Nashville area. And there's about 18 properties, if I recall. And he said, you should come down here and take a look at them. We're, we're trying to get a lot of the listings. And so I think that was like February of 09. So I flew down there and uh, we were able to put two properties under contract. One was a a really large 320 unit apartment project. And if you can believe it, it was at the time, I think it was like seven or eight, nine million dollars. It was the largest commercial real estate deal to close in Nashville in 2010. Wow. Which is totally changed. Um, and then we bought another historic building out in Clarksville, Tennessee. So anyway, I invited uh, you know, Ethan. I said, Hey, instead of you putting your deals together and I've got these two deals under contract, why don't you help me raise capital for it and we'll join a partnership? And so that's how we got the the name, you know, our our uh, real estate investment company is called BNA Associates and BNA is the Nashville Airport Code. So we just kind of created this partnership and we didn't know, if, you know, if it was gonna be, you know, there was no grand plan to make it, you know, some really long term, you know, ho- definitely no hotels, you know. <laughs> And uh, and so that's that's how it started. How did you move from doing those multifamily deals to your first hotel? 
Um, I actually got a random call from a, a family in Knoxville who I had bought some apartment properties from uh, their their late father back in 2001 when I got out of college. Um, he was a pioneer of historic preservation in Knoxville, you know, starting back even in the 1980s. And he had a large portfolio of really great historic buildings. And he basically put me in business in 2001 by selling me kind of a three building collection of 40 apartments altogether that were right adjacent to some historic townhomes that I just renovated. And he saw me as a young up and coming, you know, historic preservationist. The family was liquidating his holdings in 2010, which was a terrible time in the market to sell anything. And so they were, they were reaching out to folks who they thought had an interest in those sort of properties and in Knoxville. And I was on that list. And so, um, they called me and we, we went through the properties and one was called the St. Oliver hotel. And it was the most prominent building on market square in Knoxville. And, and I knew it because as I was developing, you know, apartments back then, a lot, you know, a lot of college students were our tenants, you know, inevitably construction would go beyond the start of school starting. And I had to put them at the St. Oliver hotel for a week or two <laughs> until we got the construction done or whatever. The hotel I felt was large enough for us to kind of undertake and, you know, have, have a staff and run it, but it wasn't so big that I felt like if we kind of got it wrong, it could hurt us too much. And Knoxville, you know, had a lot of culture. I knew, I knew the market and the people very well. Uh, th- didn't have any other boutique hotels other than this one. How often does something like that happen where you just get a phone call like, hey, we've got the perfect deal for you? More, more often than you'd think, actually. Uh, it, it's, it's less and less likely these days. But, but at one time, I felt like there was, there was more coming at us that we wanted to do than, than we could do it. You know? Do you but, think that's a function of like, if you make it known to the marketplace, this is what we stand for. Maybe not stand for is not the right word, but this is our deal thesis. This is the type of thing we want versus kind of we'll take all comers. You know what I mean? Do you, like, do you think that's an important piece of getting these sort of pocket deals? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, us doing the Oliver Hotel um, and the way we did it. Uh, was what led to us doing, uh, getting a phone call from my friend in Atlanta to do the Hotel Claremont or the Fairlane Hotel, or now we're doing, uh, you know, the historic Andrew Johnson building in Knoxville, which you know uh, Knox County selected us because of, you know, what our abilities are to do to do a hotel like that. So for sure, I think you know people sometimes have properties and they want to match, you know, the right, you know, feel and experience, you know, to that property. So the perfect transition to what I want to talk about next, which is. Hotel Claremont, because that hotel is down the street from me on Ponce here in Atlanta. I was obsessed with that property, as you recall, because I was internet stalking you for a good amount of time. (laughs) But that project is such a good example of what I consider your very uncanny timing. It had been sitting on the market forever. It was like a flop house and a mess, you know, with the strip club in the basement. You bought it, redid it, and then almost seemingly magically overnight, the area surrounding the hotel blew up. I think maybe the same thing happened with the Fairlane in Nashville that you kind of went out on a limb and then it paid off by the fact that it got surrounded by all kinds of new stuff. What do you think it is that you guys do differently that allows you to see the future or, you know, make really good guesses? Well, luck obviously has a lot to do with it. I mean, (laughs) there's there's a lot of things we've gotten wrong. 
Um, but I think the other part is just having, you know, a, a good sense of, of timing in the real estate market and just doing the fundamentals well. You know, there's plenty of good opportunities that we miss that nobody will, that will never be known for. I'd say in, in both the cases with like the Claremont Fairlane for us, it was about bringing a product to the market that we thought had demand that was not being met. Um, in those cases, it was like a well-designed, well-executed, full-service boutique hotel. And, you know, for us, the thesis in any real estate deal is doing projects that have both social and economic impacts with the social impact being really for the community, you know, something for all, you know, you know, both the stakeholders and everybody to make, you know, their improve upon neighborhoods. Uh, and then the economic impact, you know, really for us, employees, vendors, and even, even, you know, governments, you know, you know, taking derelict areas and buildings and rehabilitate them. Um, and I think when you look back like at an earlier era of the United States, I'm sure not a lot of other countries, you know, hotels were the hubs of a lot of commercial activity or growing areas at a train station, you know, like coming in. And so to me, I feel like hotels are always good first movers into emerging neighborhoods rather That's than interesting. relying on a retail project or even a residential housing project where people may not want to live there because it's a little sketchy or a retail project because there's no housing. But but hotels bring visitors in and create economic activity that, you know, it's it's unique as a product group. That is really interesting. That makes a lot of sense. It's a cool way to think about, you know, as you look around your city where there are big opportunities. A hotel should go there, of course. Absolutely. How did the business evolve from doing hotel deals to offering third-party management through Oliver Hospitality? Well, it takes a lot of time and resources to learn a market, locate a property, you know, negotiate for that property, the funding, and all the necessary legwork it takes to develop a hotel. Uh, but one thing that we can better scale with very talented people is is management. And so one of our paths to grow and give the people within our organization new opportunities is to look at other projects that developers are putting together that who like how we do things. And it's a little bit similar, like they reach out to us. And there's a lot of good management companies out there, but the ones that do independent hotels, you know, are more limited. And even for them and everybody, you know, timing and resources are a factor on when they can take something on. And so, uh, not all the businesses or not all the management companies out there necessarily have the experience in concepting, financing, designing, constructing hotels like we do. There, you know, a lot of them just focus on the actual management. And so, we get contacted by a lot of folks that have done a lot of other types of real estate, and they understand that process. But when it comes to hotels, it's kind of the fifth food group, and it completely has its own language. And it's a language I didn't understand my first eleven years as a real estate professional until we bought a hotel. And so we come in and kind of bridge that gap. We can talk real estate with them, get put the deals together, but also, hey, this is you know the mistakes we made, and this is the th- you know the ways you you know it takes to to build a successful and profitable hotel. I know that we've talked about this before that there was a little bit of a learning curve on the restaurant side. Can you talk about that? What that was like, and I don't know. Do you feel like you've mastered it at this point, or do you wish you could just? lease out the venues to somebody else and not have to fool with it. I know a lot of hoteliers feel that way. Yeah, for me, I mean, it, it's a business with, you know, perishable, perishable supplies, you know, food, uh, and it has the exact opposite margins than rooms. You know, <laughs> rooms run a 30% departmental expense with 70% operating margin. Food runs 70% operating, you know, expenses with a 30% operating margin. And so, you know, while you can have a handful of vacant rooms, each night, and maybe you just don't end up generating the return on investment you want. You could usually still pay your expenses. 
with restaurants, if you have too many vacant seats each night, it might mean not even you know meeting your operating expenses. So that was a big stress for me. Um, and I think the other one was, you know, I had never worked in a restaurant. I tried in college, but they wouldn't hire me because I didn't have any experience. So for me, unlike like construction and operating, you know, rooms, I can't really roll up my sleeves and get in there and help. I feel a bit helpless at it, uh, which was always not a great feeling for me. I definitely feel comfortable that we can bring on the right people internally at any time to make a successful restaurant. However, you know, depending on the market, the circumstance, the location, you know, if there happens to be a right local operator or a, or a different restaurant concept, that's the right fit for that situation. You know, I never want to be so cavalier and say, well, we can just do it just as well because sometimes, you know, those partnerships, you know, are, are better, but, you know, I think in our experience of the past and the event that we haven't found the right partnership, we felt there was a, a specific food and beverage concept or operation you want to pull off, then, then that's when we've done it in-house. Gotcha. Atlanta, I think, is such a perfect city for that attitude because it, it's so famous for being opposed to outsiders coming in. Like We love our homegrown chefs. We love our you know, restaurant groups that are local. And every hotel that tries to open with a celebrity chef flips that restaurant out within 18 months or less. It's very interesting and not not true in many cities, but definitely true here in Atlanta. It's yeah. weird. Yeah. You know, we observed that. I remember, I mean, well, listen, but the name of re- those restaurants you're talking about. And and we did that. And we were, you know, I'd say I was intimidated by trying to do a restaurant in Atlanta. And so that's why we brought in Steve Palmer and Indigo Rogue. You know, Steve uh, has all that Charleston experience. He, he, he worked at Canoe, you know, and so we, and he was from Atlanta. And so we felt we were kind of bringing somebody w- with that kind of market knowledge to it. We we definitely didn't feel like, and, and that was, you know, Steve did amazing things for us over at the Claremont and getting Tiny Lou's open. This sounds like a good time to take a break and learn about Cogwheel Analytics. Cogwheel Analytics is a business intelligence tool for hotel digital marketing. Since the dawn of time, hotels have only been able to compare their digital marketing data against their own historical performance. With Cogwheel Analytics, hotel companies can compare information across their portfolios in order to benchmark results. Because Cogwheel Analytics has mapped out data points for all the major brands from more than 20 different sources, hotels can stop creating manual reports and see everything from channel mix to social media to Cody, Expedia, and Google data all in one place. The time this saves gives marketers the chance to spend their time on things that actually matter, like strategy and action planning rather than creating spreadsheets. That sounds like a win to me. To learn more or schedule a demo, visit cogwheelanalytics.com. That's cogwheelanalytics.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from every episode of Top Floor with some specific practical tips and ideas to try either in their businesses or their personal lives. So Philip, every hotelier working on property has at least one amazing concept for like a glamorous, quirky, fabulous boutique hotel. Every single person right now. 
But there is a huge knowledge gap between knowing how to operate a hotel and knowing how to get a hotel deal done. What are two or three things you would suggest to a hotel person, like a hotel operations person, that they should do to close that knowledge gap? Well, I guess some of it depends, you know, what level of operating the hotel they are, whether they're, you know, a general manager or, you know, uh, a regional. But, you know, like I said in the beginning, you know, my background, I took finance and business background and I learned construction operations by doing it. And my observation um, in these types of scenarios, because the situation bring up is a familiar one for me, is that a lot of operations people just don't have the experience in the finance or business. So I'd say that my, my top three areas for them to focus on is, you know, first learning legal and organizational stuff, hmm. how to create the right ownership structure, how to read an operating agreement, raise capital. What terms do you offer investors? How much control do you give them for the capital they're giving you? Uh, how do you talk to lenders? And then also be able to set, you know, assess kind of what risks you're taking on, you know, legally. Uh, the second one is you know, really learning the entitlement and development process. And I'm including construction in that. Mm-hmm. So how to talk to municipalities. Um, are your design documents any good from your architect? Does your project budget, and I'm not, not just construction budget, but it's like your project budget account for all the miscellaneous items that are excluded from a general contractor's budget, like uh, taxes, FF&E, travel and reimbursable costs, you know, for, for consultants. You know, and critical here, you know, if you're doing historic preservation, you know, in a tax credit project is, do you know what's expected from the park service? H- how do you relate your existing conditions and budget in the building if the park service wants you to change them? What are the alternatives? There's a lot of that to, to know. And the third thing is just kind of overall, you know, market and asset management. You know, how's your property or investment, you know, performing against the market? versus your peer hotels, really versus other investments that other investors are looking at, at the stock market, you know, bonds. Is it the right time to sell? Should you refinance? Are you adequately reserving for future improvements? And then which ones of those make the most sense? So, you know, there's really just like a holistic kind of like non-operating, you know, business thing where you really kind of have to take yourself away from the day-to-day stuff and look at it from 30,000 feet. It's pretty intimidating. So we'll just put your phone number in the show notes so people can just call and ask you for advice. That's fair, right? I mean, you don't mind. Absolutely. (laughs) As you look back to your first hotel, what are a couple of the mistakes that you've learned from as you've continued to develop new properties? Back a house. I'd say, you know, some of the properties we started with either didn't have adequate back a house or, you know, we couldn't create them due to space limitations. Um, oh, like the know, physical back of house. Oh, interesting. House. Okay. Yeah, I feel like we've underbuilt or underinvested in that. Um, and, you know, recently I, I was taking a bunch of investors through our new project, the Americana Hotel in Knoxville. And they're probably thinking to themselves, like, why are you showing me the loading dock and all the employee break room areas and the storage? And, and you know, that building was built as an old historic hotel that got turned into an office building. Now we're turning it back in the hotel. Hmm. But for me, I want them to understand that, you know, there's just more than the guest facing parts of a hotel, which make it successful. And that this hotel, when they're looking at other investments or maybe getting pitched to other deals, has the, the bones needed to, you know, to be a successful property. You know, I'd always rather have a hotel with good infrastructure where we got the design and concept a little wrong than have one that looks amazing, but doesn't function very well. It, it's it's easier for us to go in and 
do a pip and fix some finishes than it is to fix a bunch of infrastructure that this doesn't work. And I think that's probably just, you know, the builder part of me. But hotel people across the land are rejoicing hearing you say that because it's the opposite of what many of us have confronted in new build properties before. We have reached the fortune telling portion of the program. So now's the time for you to predict the future and then we'll come back later and see if you got it right. What is a prediction you have about the future of hotel dining? I picked this one specifically for you because I know you're not a restaurant guy. So you're going to have the outside looking in. What's your prediction? I think it's going to get a lot healthier or at least it should. Uh, you know, maybe not so much for the dinner outlets and the full service hotels, but definitely like the breakfast and the pantry options and all hotels, I think needing to be fresher and more wholesome. You know, a lot of hotels like include breakfast and, you know, a lot. I just don't think they're very high quality, you know, and so I tend to just kind of go elsewhere. Yeah, it's but like think, eating a bag of sugar. Like, okay, thanks for the breakfast. Yeah, and, and and one of your podcasts I listened to was was somebody you guys were discussing this exactly whether it should be included or not included. And I, you know, I just tend to think that there's no free breakfast. It's just included breakfast. And so, you know, sometimes you know when you don't when you know you don't want a breakfast at a specific hotel, there's not a rate without breakfast. So the guest loses that value for paying something they're not getting. And so I think that, you know, in the hotels we do, I'd rather have like an a la carte and have fresh juices and, and, you know, healthy options that, that people could pay for. Um, personally, you know, I think like a nice niche, healthy, quick service shop have a place in hotels. You know, I've seen juice bars and other healthy places have to charge a lot of money because they've got rent and overhead. Whereas if they're housed within a hotel, a lot of that can kind of get covered by rooms, but you could, you, but you could, you know, offer a higher quality food product. It would be cool to do that and have the bar be a juice bar in the morning and a booze bar at night or whatever. Yeah, we tried that. We, we, we tried that. We did the Oliver, um, the Fairlane, uh, we had, we had stuff, but that's something we need to do. It's, it's on my short list for us to do a better job of is, is, lean a little bit more into the healthy part of it. But I think that's where, you know, my lack of food and beverage background and ability to really drive that, that business. Like I have an intent to want to do it, but uh, it's not as quite as actionable for me as, you know. Yeah. Well, plus it's a hundred percent perishable product, right? Okay. So if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the way that Americans travel, what would it be? Well, if I didn't say for them to understand how OT, OTAs work, and just book direct, I wouldn't be honest. It's not wrong. You get so many OTA bookings and then they come to you for their issues with, with travel reservations. And I've had those troubles myself. I've, I've, you know, I've used certain reward points or booked through a, a certain travel agency only to have difficulty when you get there amending or changing something and stuff. And I think there's just a disconnect between the general public's perception of how all that works and and it gets frustrating and always comes back i feel and the, the hotel is the one that gets the negative perception not the ota it's interesting though because this is such a hard nut to crack because the point of pain happens after the booking not before so there's not a really good way for hotels as an industry to make that pitch to a consumer like hey 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 Book direct. You, I promise you, it'll be better. Well, it's not better on the front end. It's a pain in the butt. But on the back end, if you run into a problem, then you're like, 
okay, now I get it. It's a little bit of a reverse marketing problem that still needs to be figured out. I'll get back to you when I have a master plan. <laughs> what is next for you and what's next for your company? Well, I mean, we're we're looking to expand into the footprint and markets that we're already in, uh, as we are with Knoxville. And I'd love to do like another project in Atlanta. And then we're looking to add hotels and markets that kind of resemble the ones that are already in, which are kind of the smaller, secondary, you know, with an existing customer base. Um, we love to be in places where, you know, our current customers are already visiting or from. So that's kind of our growth path. Okay, folks, before we tell Philip goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Philip, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Let's see. Um, uh, one interesting thing was actually it was it was the Hotel Claremont project. We had put all our financing package together, including the historic tax credits. And we were about to close the next week. And I had a really great relationship with the tax credit uh, investors. It was a CFO or I think it was actually legal. And we're on the phone as we're going to closing documents. I said, you need to at least come down and see the property. I just think it's important, you know, before we close the deal. And he says, you know, you're right. And so we picked like a Tuesday and he flew down to Atlanta and picked him up at the airport and ran him over. We had lunch at Pont City Market. And then I took him to the to the Claremont around, you know, just after noon. And we walked the building, saw, you know, the neighborhood and all that kind of stuff. And then the Claremont Lounge opens around, I think at that time it was like maybe two or three o'clock. So I took him down there. And when he goes yes, down there, I, I'm so glad you took him. I just see his face. It just just <laughs> I don't know what it was, just ghost. And uh, he was polite enough at the time. He didn't say anything. And we kind of wrapped it up and had a great time and took him back to the airport. He was just a day in, day out trip. And the next morning he called me and he said, you know, Philip, I don't know how to tell you this. He says, but we, uh, uh, we're, we're not going to be able to do this transaction. He says, we have no problems with the, the business. And we think that actually, you know, we understand its context in Atlanta and that, you know, it's an amazing thing, but we're a publicly traded company. And we can't have this in our portfolio just in you know the event that came out. And oh so my god. At the at the last minute at the closing table, uh he uh we lost our big tax credit investor. And so I had to go out and fortunately we had uh, a state tax credit investor that was separate, based in Atlanta. And th they were doing uh monarch capital. Uh, at the time they were state tax credit exchange, they only did state tax credits and 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 Robin. Uh, was just starting to take on some federal credits and stuff. So I called him and I said, Robin, I said, you want the federal credits right now? And so he did. He came in and within two weeks, he saved me. Uh, they, they oh, my goodness. The credits and got the thing built. But that, that was a that was a pretty big hole at the last minute. So Wow. Uh, the other if you, uh, you know, if you want a, an operating tale, I thought was kind of funny. Um, and I don't have a lot of them because, you know, I'm not at the properties all the time in operations and stuff. Um, but but the one I did have an experience with was uh, at the Oliver Hotel, um, we had uh a gentleman in, in, in our in our speakeasy bar, and we had a very valuable uh, painting in our lobby that that I'd personally picked from from a friend of mine out on the West Coast. And he, unbeknownst to us, we walk out of the bar that night, and the painting's gone. Oh no! We're like, oh my god, somebody just stole our painting. And so, about a couple hours later, as the bar staff was taking out the trash, the painting was out by the dumpster. And this is a over ten thousand dollar painting. And so, uh, what had happened in reviewing 
the, the, the film footage was that the gentleman left the bar, grabbed the painting up the wall and tried to stuff it in his car, which if I recall was maybe a two door convertible or something like that. The painting wouldn't fit in there. And so drunk as he was, he just ran and probably put it in the alley. And I don't know if he was going to come back and get it later or, or oh wasn't. Oh my goodness. He really escaped somebody stealing something very valuable. And then fast forward a handful of months later, uh, the gentleman comes back into the bar and the bartenders recognize him. And so while he's sitting there having a drink, they're calling me, they're calling the cops and they're getting his, they, they, they got his name off his credit card number and the whole thing. And we turned him into the police and we have him on footage, you know, trying to steal the thing. And he kind of caught on to him, uh, apparently while he was sitting there and he got up real quick and went and he kind of, he, he shuffled off in his car. Uh, but you know, the thing is we, we put that to the police and you know, it's over $10,000. So that's, that's, that's an a, art heist in your hotel. That's crazy. Do you think he was coming back to steal it? No, I don't think Do he was. That. I, I think, it, I don't, I think the first time he just had way too much to drink and just thought it'd be a neat little novelty thing for him to take back. I think the second time he probably wasn't there to get it. Um, oh. <laughs> thing was the cops, didn't, cops didn't do anything about it. Like never, like we knew his address. We had his home address. We had the film footage. We had everything and they, they, they didn't, they didn't do anything about it. But. Wow, that is insane. I don't think I've ever heard of like an art heist in a hotel before. Um, but now I have. <laughs> Philip Welker, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners got some great knowledge and information about how to create a boutique hotel. And I really appreciate you riding with us to the top floor. Absolutely. Thank, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 113. Jonathan Albano is our editor, producer, and all around genius. He even wrote and performed our theme song with vocals by Cameron Albano. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And your rating or review will go a long way in helping us give you more of what you like. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 